Welcome to Bioethics in the Margins. We are a group of bioethicists from different institutions across the country. This podcast represents our views and those of our guests, but we do not speak for our universities or medical centers, nor for any formalized bioethics organizations. Our mission is to bring marginalized topics and voices into the bioethics discourse. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Amelia Barwise, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Biomedical Ethics at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Kirk Johnson, Assistant Professor of Justice Studies and Medical Humanities at Montclair State University. Please enjoy this conversation. So we're very pleased uh, today to welcome um, another guest, Dr. Jennifer McCurdy, and she's an assistant professor at the Center for Bioethics and Social Justice within the College of Human Medicine at Michigan State University. After a career in critical care and nursing, she's currently a clinical and social bioethicist and educator whose work focuses on understanding and eliminating racial and colonial injustices in contemporary health settings and communities. Her research focuses on the intersections of bioethics, health disparity, anti-racism and anti-colonialism, and critical religious studies. She presently co-chairs the ASBH Race Affinity Group, along with Dr. Jen James. So thanks so much for being here, Jenny. Um, You've had a very noteworthy career, starting out as a nurse in the ICU. So can you describe your career trajectory and how you got interested in bioethics, did your PhD and developed your focus um, on indigenous people and anti-colonialism. Um, yes, um, thank you for having me, and I'm really excited to be here to talk with you today. Um, I already know all of you just a little bit, so this is exciting. Um, and yeah, so my my career trajectory, I would say, is wholly interdisciplinary. Um, I practiced as a nurse in critical care settings for decades, and. I think part of what took me through this trajectory was, you know, when you're when you're doing patient care one on one. I think anybody in the clinical arena can um, understand this: that you see people and you interact with people from all walks of life. And um, I took this privilege seriously, very seriously, knowing that it was a privilege to have, you know, that being able to be in contact with so many different kinds of people, um, and. What I would find is that even though in these critical care spaces the philosophical questions about ethics and technology were interesting, what I kept finding is that patients and families were getting lost in these places that were really just places of technology, of urgency, of um, uh, you know like a lot of power, and the, the families and the patients were getting lost in this. And I think I started to feel very helpless in my role to make any change and to understand what the barriers were. And so I studied, um, I sought bioethics education and training and ended up working at the Children's Hospital in um, Denver, well, what was the Children's Hospital in Denver, Colorado, and um, started doing some consultation. And I had was very generously mentored by three people that um, I really want to give a shout out to, Dr. Jackie Glover, Pete Hulak, and Stefan Mokra Heisky. Um, those three people are bioethicists too, who really undergirded my entire experience in bioethics. They started me off um, very strongly. Um, so what was interesting is that as you know, I got more into bioethics in the clinical arena. I was also t- I also spent a lot of time teaching in universities um, to healthcare professional students. 
I still kept finding that there, for instance, like I think a lot of people that work in hospitals or clinics would understand these experiences, but I would find that I would follow a case to its to the highest level I could possibly follow it to figure out how to solve a specific case, um, an ethics case. And I would always run into something such as uh, one particularly powerful surgeon who made money for the hospital or a discriminatory hospital policy or a state law. Or, of course, the trump card you'd always run into, well, if it's none of those, it's the budget. And so there was still more I felt like that needed to be done in these spaces to create some some equity and so I went on to get my PhD and people will say so you went you got your degree in religious studies and uh, because if you know me you wouldn't think that I would pursue that Um, I had a rebellious time in my life where I was a hardcore atheist Um, but I think what I ended up doing I found somebody, Dr. Miguel de la Torre, who was a professor at Isle of School of Theology, and he's a liberal social ethicist. You know him, Kurt? Um, and so I sought his his um, teachings um, as an ethicist and, and looking at it from a, a perspective of liberation and um, colonialism or anti-colonialism. But when I was studying at ILIF, I also ended up studying under Dr. Tink Tinker, who is a Wajaje Osage Indian scholar, um, now retired. Um, and so what, interestingly, I, you know, I, start out, I started out on the ground um, taking care of patients, and I'm suddenly now talking about, you know, historical and social critiques of, the, of Western society, but it all comes for full circle back to the bedside. So it's kind of been a really interesting um, trajectory, but it all actually makes sense in the big picture. Can you dive into a little bit about what is colonialism in the Euro-Christian lens? Well, okay, let me tell you what the Euro-Christian lens is from a story um, that happened today. I, I'm teaching at MSU in Michigan, Michigan State, and I decided to, t- it's a beautiful day here today, I decided to go take a walk. There's some gardens nearby and so I was looking at all of the um, flowers that were coming up all the bulbs are starting to come up and as I'm walking through the garden um, I'm reading the signs of the scientific names of the plants and it hit me that how colonial of me am I for trying to look at these um, the names the, the scientific names for these plants and thinking that's what that plant is and because what I don't know is I don't know these plants intimately. I don't know how they feel, how they smell, how they taste. I don't watch them in symbiosis with the animals and plants and crawling things around them. I um, I don't have a relationship with them. They're just plants with names, and they may not even belong here in Michigan. They may have just been transplanted here from somewhere else, and and yet here I am reading the names of these, feeling the urge to master them, and that to me is what the Euro-Christian worldview is. And I think that most of us come by it naturally. We don't even necessarily know that we're thinking that way and that it's not the only way to think. Um, But when you start to understand um, some other worldviews, you can, you know, ours will come up in pretty big relief. Um, So 
as far as the Euro-Christian worldview, um, I want to define worldview first because that's important to know. A lot of people use the word worldview to mean a perspective or an ideology, and some, people use that word in very different ways. Um, but one of the things that um, Dr. Tinker uh, has talked about with his, this is his definition of worldview, and uh, also a student of his, uh, a former student of his, Mark Freeland, um, that this worldview is more than just a perspective. It's actually an inner set, inner, an interrelated set of logics, cultural logics, that that create. And I'm going to read uh, Mark Freeland's uh, actual definition of worldview. It's an interrelated related set of cultural logics that fundamentally orient someone to a culture, to um, and their culture to space, time, the rest of life, and provides a prescription for relating to that life. So it's not just a way of thinking or a perspective about one thing or about politics or about economy. It's a whole set of logics that work together and create this entire worldview. And it's actually something that's cognitively framed. Um, it's deep within our neuronal structures. We come by it from an early age. And so basically it is, it's baked into our brains. Our worldviews are baked into our brains. They're difficult to change. Um, because it's so much a part of just who we are and how we see the world and how we've grown to see the world shaped around us. So the Euro-Christian worldview is um, it's, it's a, an adjective. And so the way that you'll see this written is Euro-Christian is all one word and Euro is, and it's, it's uh, not capitalized. Because it's an adjective to describe a social movement Euro-Christian is more like a social movement or um, some sort of worldview, but it's not necessarily a people. Um, and it's it's it doesn't mean that you're European or that you're Christian per se. And I think that's one of the hardest things to describe about this is people will say, well, I'm not even Christian or I'm not European, so I'm not Euro-Christian. And, and it's actually not, it's about the origins of this worldview within both Christendom and European Enlightenment and, you know, all of that, that long trajectory of thinking and how they've worked together to create this set of logics. And so the Euro-Christian worldview really is the worldview that's dominant in, in the United States for sure, but in most of the world now, you'll see this worldview sort of taking over. Um, so that's the Euro-Christian worldview, and the Euro-Christian worldview is what's driven colonialism for the last 500 years. It's this way of thinking. Um, Do you think there are connections between this Euro-Christian worldview and uh, dominionism or this understanding of dominion? And uh, how do you think these connections relate to medicine specifically um, within bioethics? I think when you're talking about dominion, you're talking about Genesis and the, um, okay. So, um, yes, I think that it's exactly about the concept of dominion. Um, so for listeners who don't know the, um, the, the, the one verse in Genesis, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And so that is what's interesting about that is that's our origin story. Um, 
Genesis is our origin story, and it's that is the Euro-Christian origin story. So what you can find in that um, idea of dominion, people and people interpret this very different ways, but um, right. this idea of dominion, so colonialism is about domination. Um, it's about... Um, it's about taking something that already exists and calling it and changing it and replanting something else in its stead. And, um, and so, yeah, this, this Christian origin story is, is Euro-Christian through and through. Um, whereas you, if you looked at, so, so for instance, it's hierarchical. It, you can see that there's hierarchy there that humans are over the fish and um, the sea and the fowl of the air. They're over everything. And and so there's a hierarchy, which is very Euro-Christian. Um, all of our systems are hierarchical. Um, and it's about domination. It's also about the individual, about the individual's sin or salvation. It's not about, it's not about community. Um, and so... If you look at this from the standpoint of an indigenous origin story, so there's multiple indigenous or origin stories. There's not just one, um, but oftentimes they're um, more about a relationship or some sort of cooperation between people and animals. Or, um, but there, it's not hierarchical and it's not about dominating. Um, it's a, their origin stories are very different, and those origin stories drive how their worldviews, how they see and act in the world um, and with each other. So I, I think that another way that this idea of dominion, we see it today is in Christian, the Christian right, um, Christian nationalism. Um, and that is colonial America. That is um, exactly what that is. Right. And how do you think this mentality or mentalities, the multiple understandings of dominion, how has that translated into the clinic, into medicine, into healthcare? Because there are definitely their correlations historically. And I'm curious, what is your perspective understanding our history, but even the struggles regarding this type of mentality in medicine today? If we look at the trajectory, because it's, it's, it's a trajectory. So, uh, oh my gosh, there's a quote um, that that colonialism. Oh my gosh, I'm going to mess this up. I'll think about it in a minute. But so, so this the number one thing I would say is that medicine, the dominion in medicine, from there's multiple levels of this. From a religious perspective, you see a lot of religious-based hospitals and systems that are driven by Christian ideals, um, missions of medicine and care. And so that in and of itself is a sort of creating a dominion over healthcare and medicine and how it should be practiced. Um, that doesn't necessarily always meet the values and needs and worldviews of the people that, that are, they're caring for in those institutions. And so that's one example. But um, also if we looked at the, um, there's no need to actually be Christian to be dominating in medicine, that there's this, uh, still this sort of Darwinian trajectory, which is also about, in, in a lot of ways, this idea of progress, um, that we're progressing 
scientifically or you know, as humans um, based on our civilization. And the medical industrial complex is a huge example of dominion in medicine. It's where all of, it's where a lot of the resources go. Um, and it's continuing to feed this idea that more is better and progress is always good and more progress is even better. And um, so it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be religious, but it can be enlightened based in the enlightenment but in this in this sort of form of progress medical progress technological progress um and so i would say that in medicine today that's where you can still see that idea of dominion um, from multiple different perspectives yeah so uh, not exclusively um theological or religious however there is that undergirding that foundational understanding based off theological and religious ideologies and um, assumptions, right. if you will. Yeah, it's the worldview that drives us. It's what's beneath, it's, it's our impulses. It's, it's not something even, we're just, this is, this is the way it is. This is our truth. Um, but it's not the only truth, but we feel that it is because we're, this is the life we're living in. So the, um, the Hastings Center has just released their um, task force report and you had an important article in it, um, Colonial Geographies, Black Geographies and Bioethics. Can you explain that term? Because that term was kind of new to me um, and how it sort of applies to bioethics being, as they say in the issue, braver, bolder and broader as a discipline. Yes, that just came out and that's very exciting. Um, I, so um, I relied on a work by Catherine McKittrick um, called Demonic Grounds. And she uses a term called cultural geography. Um, and it's it's not a new term necessarily, but it's the way humans make sense of and interact with their physical spaces um, and also how people interact with other beings. And so your question is, well, what is this idea of geography or is there something else you want me to expand on? Can you, can you kind of elaborate on the term and, you know, how it relates to bioethics and our understanding of how we can kind of progress? Yeah, so um, again, going back to um, this idea of colonialism and um, Euro-Christian worldview, so it has a lot to do with geography and not just physical geography, not just um, continents or countries or, but also spaces. Um, and so one of the things that, that has happened with colonialism is that the way places are named and marked and known um, have been changed in, in really big ways. So for instance, like here's a very small example. Um, I was living in Alaska for three years, so this is an easy one, but um, Denali, the mountain Denali, um, was changed to Mount McKinley based on a white explorer that wanted the mountain named after him. Um, and so, but now it's Denali again, people are calling it Denali again, but, um, but these kinds of things, it's this overwriting of history um, in a way that erases people um, and people's experiences and, um, so if we took the slave ship, um, for example, that is seen by white, the white colonizer and in sort of um, abstract ways, 
it's seen as free labor, it's economic gain, it's technology, it's technological progress. But that very specific place on a slave ship is a very different story if told by the people who were captured, um, Africans that were captured. And um, so what McKittrick does is she talks about how these places that were not abstract at all, they were actually real spaces of, for people of terror, of resistance, of resilience, of relationship. Um, it's the same physical space that's being that's being named by the colonizer or by white people, by white history books even today, as something very different than it was. And it hides, it hides the actual experiences and the the alternate history that's being that could be being told. So if you look at this from a bioethics perspective or from a healthcare perspective, you can see that also in places like hospitals, hospitals are that are sort of these normalized places for um, uh, the dominant culture. Um, they're places to heal. Um, they're actually, you know, not that everybody feels safe in a hospital, but at least when white people go into a hospital, they see a lot of white caregivers. There's not, um, it's not charged with all of these extra things that uh, when, when a racialized patient goes into a hospital, they're rendered ungeographic. It's the same concept that they're not seen, they're not listened to, they're not believed. Um, and so this idea of geography, of how uh, human geography is, is that those spaces and places are very different for different people. Um, and I think that we also see this in, matter of fact, I don't know if anybody saw this, but Nika Sederstrom, Dr. Nika Sederstrom, Nika Sederstrom she talked yesterday at an ASBH um, program and she talked about, this really hit me pretty hard too, she talked about how when a white care provider goes into a room of a black family or black patient, we have to know that our mere presence can cause distrust and tension and potentially even harm and that is um, that is a very different, those are two, it's, it's almost like we're living in alternate worlds. Um, and so that's the idea of cultural or human geography. Yeah, absolutely. And I had the privilege of actually uh, joining that Zoom call as well, really in depth, very informative. Um, and it hopefully struck a lot of chords. I think it did in allowing folks to really look at the interpersonal dynamics, but also the racial, historical, social, and many other dynamics of the clinical setting with patients of color. So um, she did an amazing, amazing job, as she always does. Um, she's a great speaker. So to follow up with that, um, how do you think race influences space and place? And you did mention that previously, so not just about the problems of race and space and the different influences you're about to expound on, but what are suggestions for equitable racial outcomes in spaces and places where patients of color reside and live and dwell and are seeking healing? Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a heavy weighted question, but <laughs> I mean, and coming so like for the people who are listening, I am white, and you know, I I 
don't feel like I'm necessarily an authority on a lot of this. Um, I'm learning myself. And um, all I can say is that, you know, there's a lot of people who are do doing a lot of good work um, around, you know, a lot of the things that people are talking about more and more now about implicit bias and and structural change um, and, and um, public health efforts and, you know, all of those things. And I think that that in order to create equity, racial equity and other types of equity in healthcare, it has to be, you know, all hands on deck and everybody's just doing it something in their little corner of the world, whatever you can do. Um, and I, I, I feel like this is one of those things where it's taken a long time for us to get to this place. And so it's gonna take a long time for us collectively to get out of this. Um, but, uh, I think from, from, from my perspective, I think that what I can say is that as a white person, I have learned some really hard lessons, um, and I'm continuing to learn really hard lessons, but I think that we, from, and from a colonial perspective, we have to learn about the, um, we have to learn about that history. We have to constantly be reading scholars of color and putting ourselves in places that are uncomfortable. And I think that, um, you know, from my perspective, it's, I feel like maybe it's my place to speak to other people who are Euro-Christian um, in quotes, but w which we all are, we all have some of that, that um, way of thinking, but, I just think that we have to heal ourselves. We're, we've all been colonized. Um, some people are suffering much more greatly under it than others, but we've all been colonized and we have to heal ourselves from that colonization. And what I'm finding out is it looks a lot like therapy. <laughs> um, and so I guess I look at it from a place of, uh, of personal growth um, which is not easy, but, but then there's also the other pieces, the structural pieces, education, um, uh, changing policy. It's, it's just, I mean, it's massive. And I don't know, Kurt, does that answer your question? Do you have other things you were looking for there? No, um, it's just basically based off of your particular experience and perspective. There's so many ways you could go about this. But it's really just having the conversation, really the acknowledgement, right? If you don't acknowledge a problem exists, the problem continues to persist and exist. But at least acknowledging and having a starting point of where do we go from here? And of course, it's not one answer because racism, colonialism, um, imperialism is systemic in many different ways. So in order to respond and have some restitution, there has to be a systemic dynamic in restitution and reconciliation and repair. And I think one particular way of doing that is educating ourselves. And one particular uh, question I have, or my colleague Amelia um, has, is regarding educating ourselves, regarding the clinical ethical aspect of indigenous values. And what are some recommendations uh, can you offer to our audience about scholars in that particular field? Um, and also, what would bioethics look like through 
an indigenous lens? So that is not a question that I can necessarily answer. I can um, give some clues. Um, so one of the things, if you look at if you look at a Euro Christian worldview, it's um, it's very much about uh, hierarchy. It's about progress. It's about um, capitalism um, and accumulation. It's about science. Um, and of course, these are all like really big buckets of generalizations, but in general, that's kind of how we see the world. Um, and, and it's about, you know, it's about mastery and control. And I'm getting those words from Dr. Willie James um, Jennings, because I just listened to one of his podcasts recently. Um, but, and so when, my understanding of an indigenous worldview, um, and again, that's this is not to essentialize indigenous peoples. It's to say that there are some shared, I some shared um, logics with indigenous worldview in general, um, and the orientation to the world is more. It's uh, it's not hierarchical. It's more egalitarian, and it's not just humans on the same level. It's it's everything. It's it's every living thing. There's no hierarchy. You're, it's everybody's and everything is in relation. I should say everybody is in relationship with everybody else. That includes animals and plants. Um, and so, first of all, the hierarchy is not there. Second of all, the um, economy is going to be very different. It's not going to be competitive. It's not going to be about profit. It's going to be about gifting. It's going to be about gratitude. Um, and and the knowledge systems are going to be very different. There's going to be a lot of uh, knowledge that's passed on from ancestors. There's going to be ritual and tradition um, instead of just faith in science. And so there's a lot more relationship. This is what I've learned from a lot of my colleagues that I've worked with who've taught me um, some of this. And yet I can sit here and say these things are indigenous, but I don't live them. They're not my worldview. So I I, I don't actually really embody and may never, probably will never embody what an indigenous worldview is, but contrasting it to a Euro-Christian worldview, it's, you can, then you can see what a Euro-Christian worldview is. It's very different kinds of values, very different ways of seeing the world um, in ways that I don't even think we'll ever understand um, in the Western world. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like it's the antithesis of, uh, or the dis extreme distinctions between the Euro-Christian worldview and, of course, the indigen indigenous worldview. Uh, and when you actually examine it, filter it out, examine it, all of the different dynamics of that, you could see there are two ways of life, two ways of going about power. Um, is it communal? Or is it more individualistic type of um, understanding and sense of bringing humanity forward? So those are two really um, important distinctions to make in ideologies and understanding how do we go about bioethics in this particular worldview that, of course, as we've seen before, doesn't really uh, lead to equitable results. Or maybe we should rethink our framing and embrace the indigenous type of worldview 
for a more communal um, and valuable understanding of folks, no matter who they look like and where they come from. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that a lot of healing could happen in our world if we all embraced indigenous worldview and values, Absolutely. for sure. I, there was a um, and so I had worked on. I've been working on a scoping review. Um, on indigenous issues in the bioethics literature and a quote that one of my favorite quotes from everything I read was from a woman, a Diné woman, her name is uh, Lisa Boyvin, uh, I'm probably going to mess this up, Boyvin, um, and she's an artist and a bioethicist um, and she said in one of the articles I read she said everything that has to do with ill health as understood within Western medicine is a result of separation from land and land-based practices. And to me, that's so simple, but it says it all. Thanks so much for this discussion, Jenny. Um, So just to sort of um, kind of uh, sort of circle back to what you and Kurt were talking about a few minutes ago, is there a role for reparations in any of this? And can you see, can you maybe let us know your thoughts about that or how that could be implemented or uh, the pros and cons that you might see with that? And, you know, not just in the US, but maybe considering nations outside that were also colonized. There's a, I mean, there's a lot of talk about reparations and different ways that that might look. And um, it could be, um, you know, I think when I think about this question, I, I of course don't have the answer, but I will say that um, well, okay, I want to go back to NECA from yesterday, from Dr. Setterstrom, because she also talked about this, and she said that it's not about giving a sum of money to people and then being done with it, it's about structural change, and I agree with that. Um, if one of the things that comes to mind when we talk about reparations is the land back movement um and so true de- so the united states uh let's put it this way turtle island on which the united states now sits is still colonized um indigenous people on this continent are still colonized colonized so there has been uh uh, there's been no decolonization. There's no post-colonial period right now. And so this idea of decolonization, at least in the United States and in a lot of the settler settler states, um, is about land back. And land back is, it's a, yes, it's about giving land, actual physical land back to um, the original people who lived and lived and still live and care for this land Um, but it's not about owning land it's about having a relationship with land it's about and about being able to protect it and keep it well and keep everything well and in balance and so land back is about actually having land but it's not about owning it because that's colonial ownership of land property ownership is colonial Um, and so the idea of being able to have a relationship with the land and having land be healthy and be in in symbiosis is really part of this land back movement. Um, there have been some things that have happened. There are different ways that this is happening. 
Um, and so there are tribes buying land back. There are foundations that are raising money to help tribes buy land back. Um, there are farmers returning their land to the original owner. I don't want to say owners because that's colon that's colonial, right? That's Euro-Christian, but it's hard. It's, that's what comes out. Um, and so there's also a lot of laws um, that are starting to come out in policies about the rights of land, the rights of water in and of itself, the rights of animals. And so even though rights language is still very politically Euro-Christian, it's a tool for trying to sort of create this um to begin to decolonize, to begin to decolonize physically and um, also in a way that's more um, uh, decolonizing our minds. But but so it's kind of like environmentalists. They're not really doing the same thing that indigenous people are doing when they're try, trying to fight for the rights of land and, and animals and water and people. Um, one is a relationship with the other is you're still a steward of and you're not within it you're outside of it protecting it so there's it's it's just two different worldviews um and so reparations i think the land back movement to me um is one of those those ways that we can think about reparations i mean there but there's so many different countries that have been colonized and that are post-colonial and that um, many, many people are suffering in that post-colonial state. And, and so, you know, like it would, it's enormous. This idea of reparations is enormous and it wouldn't benefit the people that are in the dominant culture. And so there's your problem. Yeah. Uh, many different ways uh, reparations can be uh, reconciled. It's not just giving money and, and that's it. That was the attempt, uh, I believe, in, during Reconstruction um, until President Johnson basically took that way back and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to return that land, that quote-unquote uh, 40 acres, back to the slaveholders, and we're just going to leave that population, black folks, to fend for themselves. And literally, that's what uh, unfortunately happened. So there has never been an attempt in American history to have a set plan, an actual structure of restitution, of reconciliation for uh, black people, unfortunately. And every time there's been progress, there's been this uh, white resentment, unfortunately, uh, of, of, of thinking that because any type of equity leads to their oppression or white individuals oppression so there's always pushback every time there's some type of a collective or governmental plan to reconcile and that will continue to happen because that's a deeply rooted issue within our american politics um also bioethically in so many other different ways that we don't have the time to talk about today however i do have a question for you regarding colonial geographies and the issue with, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I wanna say something about that because yeah, that's, yeah. that is a very Euro-Christian way of thinking in terms of the fact that, that there's scarcity. Right, um, right. And 
and it's a zero-sum game that if you get something it's taken away from me and and an indigenous worldview would probably look at things more from a lens of abundance that there's enough for everyone and so i just want to point that out from uh that that's very euro christian yeah absolutely absolutely there's always enough for you but never enough for somebody else so that is the irony in that type of thinking so absolutely yeah no problem it is connected to at least on a global scale regarding the mentalities of colonial geographies and the COVID-19 global vaccination distribution um, or dissemination, as I should say. There's been criticism by the World Health Organization, United Nations, and also poorer countries that wealthy countries like the U.S. have been hoarding these vaccines and the actual dissemination of the vaccines globally um, really has fallen short compared to what was promised. And my question is, do you think the mentalities of colonial geographies contribute to this, or do you think it's more complex than that, or it could be both? Yeah, that's a really great question. I feel like, um, so first of all, this idea of pandemics is about um, you know, it's it's a public health issue, and even the the profession of or the the field of public health comes from tropical medicine, which comes from a time when colonizer colonizers were traveling to other climates and they were getting wiped out by diseases, and so these these medications were you know being developed for the colonizers so that they could continue to work in these areas and dominate them. And, um, and they, so public health wasn't necessarily made for the locals. It wasn't created for the locals. Um, and that investment would never have been made. Um, so even just the history of that, I think is very interesting. Um, I looked up on the New York times, they have a site, called tracking coronavirus vaccinations around the world. And um, because I, I hadn't looked recently to see what the vaccination rate is across um, the continent, I mean, across the world. And it look, in Africa, the continent of Africa, everything else was blue, meaning it had been, at least everybody had received one vaccine 70 to 80% of the time, somewhere in there. Um, but Africa was orange. And it was um, most countries in Africa had only had either less than 20 percent and up to 35 percent of the population receiving one, at least one vaccine. And I think the problem, the way I see this is very much a colonial problem or a post-colonial problem, because in 18, I think it was 1888, Africa was basically divided up between four, five, six European, tiny little European powerful countries and was basically used in um, extraction and profit for those countries. And so all of the wealth, all of the resources were being taken out of Africa and they were profiting 
the colonizing countries. And so a lot of wealth was diverted and is still diverted from the continent. And so thinking about that history um, and also the fact that in Africa, they they don't have, they haven't been able to invest in vaccine manufacturing. Um, and so I think if you look at the, the, the drain on Afri- African countries, and then you look at the fact that they have to rely on outside countries for vaccine manufacturing. It really is about, talk about reparations. It really should be that the rest of the world that has really good access to vaccine manufacturing and vaccines as a, as a reparative movement should be sending those to Africa it's not compassion or charity. It's it's reparative. It's owed to Africa from everything that's been extracted from those countries for so long. Um, that's how I see it. Um, do you have a, what do you think? Oh, I think you made bioethics in the margins history that an actual interviewee will ask the interviewer a question, but it's okay. Uh, it is a conversation. Um, so for our listeners, uh, what Dr. McCurdy is actually referring to is a Berlin conference. That is in 1884 to 1885 uh, specifically. Um, but you will, it's okay. 1888, 84, around that particular time frame. But it is called the Berlin conference. And what do I think about it? Um, in short, because it really is about um, your particular perspective, is that there is going to be a considerable amount of sacrifice if European countries in America really pay back, monetarily so, in reparations. It'll be trillions upon trillions of dollars, right? Now, can we do that, particularly in America? Uh, I believe we can. Before, there was an argument that we don't have any money, but then when the pandemic came and all of a sudden we made money for everybody and, and of course, giving aid to all other um, dominantly white countries, then that argument is kind of like, well, you have money for them. Why don't you have money for, for um, you know, people of color? Uh, another thought is displacement. So um, around 80 million folks globally are displaced. They have different statuses, refugee, um, um, immigrant, migrant. There's so many different designations and statuses that the United Nations um, labels, unfortunately, these individuals. The great majority of these individuals are black and brown people. And a lot of times they're ignored. They go to different countries to seek asylum and they don't get it. Matter of fact, the countries that actually offer asylum, they're the poorer countries. It's really rare for wealthier countries to offer asylum to these individuals. So that colonialistic um, Euro-Christian type of mentality still exists today in 21st century diplomacy. And it's really unfortunate and it's heartbreaking, but it does exist. And that also needs to be called out. So it's about valuing individuals regardless of what they look like. But because the Eurocentric and Euro-Christian mentality is so dominant that it's 
actually normal for black and brown people to be devalued. It's actually part of the process. And that is the, um, if I could use this word, uh, the sin of that mentality. That we're up here and everybody else is down here. They're basically a means to an end themselves. So that is my particular perspective. Yeah, it's hierarch it's hierarchical thinking. It's categor it's categorizing. It's um, tidying. Everything has to be. T this is something I learned from uh, another piece in my scoping review, and I can't remember her. It's Fitzgerald. She's um, uh, her last name. I can't remember her first name, but she wrote an article, and she talked a lot about um, the idea of tidiness and how white people want to tidy everything up. They want like rules and policies and laws for everything and everybody has to follow the rules and it's hard for us to be messy it's hard for us to be um unsettled or discomforted or you know those sorts of things and i think that um that tidiness too but like all of those things it's it's the law it's the interconnected logics of capitalism of of profit of hierarchy of it's it's not each of these things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad but it's this interrelation of all of these cultural logics that are right. so detrimental yeah absolutely um there's layers to this conversation and we even go into eugenics which of course is a huge contributor to the scientific issues that we have today. Um, but maybe that could be a part two episode. I'm trying to pull Dr. McCordy back in for another uh, podcast episode about that. Uh, but great conversation, and we are extremely grateful for your time, your wisdom, and your insight uh, about colonial geographies and the many repercussions that this particular topic brings in conversation, but also literally in public health. And a lot of folks of color are impacted by this mentality. So thank you for uh, joining us. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another great conversation on bioethics in the margins. This podcast is hosted by Amelia Barwise and Kirk Johnson. Our producer is Elizabeth Chung. Our editor is Nicole Strand. Our theme music was written and produced by Pablo Cuartas. And we are grateful for the assistance of Wendy Jung and Benjamin Foster. Join us again next time.